0: Hello again and welcome once more to Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language and it is presented by me, Giles Brandreth, and my friend, colleague and the world's leading lexicographer, though she doesn't describe herself as that, but it is what she is and she is Susie Dent. How are you, Susie?
1: Hello, and hello to all the purple people listening. I'm fine, actually. Thank you, Giles. I am feeling okay. I have to say, I did have a week where I completely flumped and slumped and couldn't quite get the energy to do anything, which is not like me at all. But I've come out of it a bit. I'm
0: glad you have. But if you were like that, you were as the people are, because there was a report out this last week from University College London. They'd canvassed some 70,000 people and found that in this lockdown, everybody, or most people, were more lethargic, less active, Mm. more sort of droopy than during last lockdown. And there'd been quite a big drop in the amount of people getting involved in hobbies, volunteering activities, a reduction of going out to do volunteering of about 36%. 13% had decreased those general activities. And as we know, happiness depends on pursuing your passions. And Mm. while, you know, listening to the radio is interesting and watching TV can be fun. We do need to be actively engaged in things. I've been going loopy at this end. Genuinely, when there was the snow 10 days ago, I thought, oh, this is amusing. And my wife found me in the garden. She said, what on earth are you doing? You're naked. I said, I'm not totally naked. I'm wearing this sort of cardigan. She said, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking topless photographs of myself. I've seen Liz Hurley doing it and she's gone viral. My wife said, you will not go viral. You'll be arrested. Come on in. So so I did. But we're all going a little bit mad, aren't we? I mean have you been going a bit loopy or just feeling limp?
1: No, not loopy, um luckily. I just I think throughout lockdown I've been operating by being slightly manic in that kind of working 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 getting everything done and feeling the adrenaline of actually ticking things off my list. And weirdly, being manic in that way reduces my anxiety levels. But I have to say I think it was the first working week of January. I just couldn't get it together. I couldn't get the enthusiasm together. And the more idle I am, the worse I feel. I think I'm quite like you. I remember you saying to me that work defines you and I feel that it does me a little bit as well. But anyway, I'm back up and running I'm yeah. pleased to say, and I'm definitely fueled by coffee.
0: I mean, the truth is busy people are happy people, but it's quite difficult to be busy if you are locked up in your home. And if you're yeah. faced with the nightmare of homeschooling, it is challenging. So really yes. what we're saying is purple people, if you're feeling a bit pooped, we're feeling a bit pooped, poop, pooped, Can't even get the words out, can we? Now, look, one of the things I've been doing to keep my spirits up is avoiding the news on television. But I did, Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I did watch the inauguration of President Joe Biden on television because I thought Mm -hmm. I like to collect historic events, like I watched the moon landings back in the 1960s. I remember watching when they took down the Berlin Wall. I thought, these are things that are happening in our world, television brings them into our homes, let's watch. So having avoided really politics and the American election completely, I thought I will watch this. And it was interesting, but you actually followed last year The American election quite actively, didn't you?
1: Oh, every second in a strange sort of way. I think once I knew which way the vote was going, I think I began to relax and became absolutely fascinated by it. So I was watching CNN on a loop, like so many people, in fact. Not the most impartial of channels, has to be said, but still incredibly interesting. And then, of course, we had the terrible, terrible events in Washington at the Capitol. And that was also mesmerizing, but in the most kind of grueling way. You know, thrilling perhaps in the original sense of the word, which it used to mean to pierce someone with a sword, and then we were pierced with fascination, but it wasn't always a very good fascination. And yeah, that's kind of how I felt. So thank goodness we are past those well, now.
0: I had a very interesting encounter this week with the person who is the disinformation correspondent for the BBC. Oh. And she was telling me that a lot of research has been done on people who spread not simply fake news, but who believe in conspiracy theories that have been patently shown not to be true. Mm. And all the research shows that actually just saying, you're a fool, you're wrong, is not very helpful. No. That actually, you've got to be empathetic. You've got to actually try and see what is it that triggered their need to believe in this conspiracy theory. She was yeah. explaining me how there are, genuinely, there were people, thousands of them, you know, who believed, for example, that the royal family were all lizards and involved in some enormous international paedophile ring. I mean, totally bizarre mm. and patently not true, but believed by some. And she was saying, you've got to question why people feel able or want to take on these things. So I've been looking at, as it were, protesters and people who believe in strange things in a more sympathetic way as a result of that. But Mm. I wanted to know a little bit about the language of protest. I thought, you're the person to tell me. Have you ever been on a protest march, Susie Dent?
1: I have been on various kind of green marches, if you like. So I've participated in some marches against climate change, very peaceful ones, I have to say. And I wouldn't say I've ever been a kind of militant protester, but certainly there were some great ones in Oxford against climate change where lots of school kids went as well. So you could go as a family and it was incredibly reassuring, really, that you could see so many people who were equally passionate, but not in a militant way. How about you? It's
0: quite exhilarating. I've only been on two marches. They were both peace marches. One was in the 1960s, during my gap year, Mm -hmm. Is that a phrase people still use, the gap between school and university? Yeah. Uh, The world's become so muddled now. When are you at school? When are you at university? Do you get to either? Do you have a year in between? Anyway, during my gap year, I had sort of a year off before going to university. I went to the United States of America, which was then quite an exotic place to go to in the 1960s. And it was at the height of the Vietnam War. And I took part in a march on Washington, D.C. And there were literally millions of us in this march. And I heard Martin Luther King, he was one of the speakers. He was long. Isn't that amazing? He was a long, long way away. You know, he was Mm. a little sort of pin figure in the far distance. But we had the sound of him relayed to us. It was extraordinary. And then I took part in an anti-war march in the year 2000, I think it was, against the Iraq war. And that was in London. I walked to Trafalgar Square. Yeah. That was, again... Were you an MP then? No, I ceased to be an MP. And I just, you know, I thought, well, actually, I mean, it's quite good to be able to do it. In a, yes. a peaceful protest. Stand up and be and, and Tell me what the word yeah. protest means. Because pro sounds like something positive, test means yes. an exam. Explain that word.
1: Yes, so it goes back to the Latin protestare, and then it came into us via French, as it always did. So pro, in the sense, means forth, and testare means to call to witness. Oh. So, in other words, it's related to testament, it's related to testify, it's actually related to testicle as well, because a man's testicles were seen by the Romans as proof of... Of or witness of their virility. Oh. So they're all related. But yes, it's to kind of call to witness. In other words, it's kind of pretty much what you were doing. If you believe in something, you go and you are witness to your own you know, opinions and your own protests. So that is where that one came from. What was really interesting about the events at the Capitol in Washington was that media in the US weren't completely sure at the beginning what to call them. Mm. So some called them riots. Other people called it an insurrection, which I think is the word that Joe Biden used, in fact. Some called it sedition. Others revolt. No one called it a revolution because I don't think. they got um, that, far. I, that, that <laughs> No, but it was really, really interesting. And we can go through those. I'd like actually, to, Because they have all got interesting histories.
0: Take me through them.
1: Okay, shall I start with insurrection? So, as I say, this was at the time President elect Biden's response to the violence. So, it's defined in the dictionary as an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or an established government. And it goes back to the Latin again, insurgary, meaning to rise against. And in a really rare public move, I understand, the National Public Radio stations in Washington announced that they were formally choosing insurrection as the official broadcast term for the day. Mm. So they kind of agreed it. sedition, Sedition had already been used of Donald Trump's attempts to... Override the results of the election, you know, to overthrow it and to be an autocrat, I suppose. So sedition is from the Latin meaning separation, in fact, and it's defined as speech or conduct inciting people to rebel against authority. Now, sedition is slightly different from treason because that's a direct attempt to overthrow that authority, whereas sedition is kind of inciting it, which is why it was applied to Trump, because it was said that he was, you know, inciting the mob, if you like. That was another term that was used to move on the Capitol, but he wasn't directly involved in it himself.
0: Sorry, sedition. What is the origin of that word?
1: It goes back to the Latin meaning separation. So it's an attempt to separate The people from the authority, if you like, or from the government. Others, it has to be said, thought that the line between sedition and treason had been crossed and that Trump had been treasonous in his actions. But for the most part, it was either sedition or insurrection. And there was another verb, I don't know if you noticed it, that kept cropping up that we hardly ever hear. And I really have only kind of experienced it on Countdown. And it's to foment, not ferment, but foment. Um, How do you spell that? F-O-M-E-N-T. Oh, yeah. To ferment is to kind of stir up. So to insight again, I guess. And it goes back to the Latin fevere, meaning to heat. And it first meant, actually, you would foment injuries with heated potions or wax. So it's a cure originally. But then it's meaning kind of switch dramatically from kind of soothing pain to actually instigating it. So the idea is that you arouse emotions or ignite them as a call to action. So those were some of the terms that were being bandied about.
0: You mentioned the word riot. Where does that come from?
1: So riot, I have to look this one up. Certainly it came to us via the French, just while I'm looking this up. It was interesting that when there were the Black Lives Matter marches and protests early on, they were quite often called riots. And, you know, Trump's mantra was law and order, as if he was calling against you know, law-breaking and disorder. And certainly there was some of it, but not nearly to the extent that, you know, the language was suggesting. But riots actually weren't applied to the protesters at the capital. And so some people were kind of saying, well, riot is such a loaded term. Why was it just applied to the Black Lives Matter marches? So, yes, riot goes back to the French, rioter, meaning to quarrel. But its ultimate origin is unknown. So there you go. And
0: revolt and revolution, obviously the same source.
1: Yes, and it's all about turning something around. So a revolution is, you know, if you talk about the revolution of a wheel, as it revolves, it's to turn round or to roll. And a revolution is the overthrow, if you like, the rolling over of a government. That's why we kind of rev when we turn over a a motor. And revolt was, again, it was the idea of overthrowing, but then it also developed the sense of making someone turn away in disgust, as in that's revolting. But it's all the idea of turning.
0: Before we go on... To actually talk about the protesters and you know mm. manning the barricades. Explain this to me, because one of my grandchildren wanted to know this. All this was happening at the Capitol building in the Capitol, yes. uh, Washington, D.C. being the capital of the United States of America. The Capitol building being this building where the Congress and the Senate gather. Capitol and Capital. A capital and capital, are they connected yeah. one with another?
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting actually. My brother-in-law also messaged me about this, saying, "Yeah, it's capital, just as kind of weird American spelling of it." The answer is no, although they do go back to the same origins, which is the Latin "caput," c a p u t, which meant a head. So capital letter is like the chief letter, if you like. The capital city is the chief city of a country. And it can also mean wealth. So the idea of being sort of large, I suppose. So that's... Oh, that's that's, as in capitalism. As in capitalism, as in I'm going to put some capital into this, etc. So it's the idea of being chief or major, I suppose. The capital goes back to the Latin Capitolium and that was the name of a temple who in Roman times was dedicated to Jupiter and Jupiter was the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Zeus and it sat this is the key thing it's once sat on the smallest of Rome's seven hills which was called the Capitoline Hill mm. and of course in Washington the full name of the capital is Capitol Hill So, it's all based in Roman times.
0: So, actually, that area is called the Capitol Hill. Yes. And within the Capitol Hill are the Senate and the Congress. And do they have interesting origins?
1: Well, I like Senate. I mean, critics of government might say, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense because it's linked to senile. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's all to do with Senex, old man. And in Roman times, again, the senators were old, generally old men, but they were thought to then bring not just age, but wisdom, the wisdom of age, which is actually a really lovely way of looking at it, because I think age discrimination is just so... Powerful, whereas in other countries, I'm going off a tangent here, but we look at age as kind of, yeah, as I say, a bringer of wisdom, but we don't have that, do we? Well, we just we, worship youth.
0: We do at the moment. We have worshipping old people in the sense that we, I speak as one, are the people getting the vaccine first. So, well, you know, that is true. for once, the old people are being treated in a special way. You know, have you had yours? Uh, I hope by the time we air this I will have had mine so when we Excellent. next speak I shall be able to give you a full report. Obviously I shall be happy to have whatever vaccine I'm offered but I'm yes. keeping my fingers crossed it'll be the Oxford one. I feel oh. I feel we all to See energy. there
1: is, there is I'm totally going off tangent here but there is a wonderful video and I'm so sorry I don't know the name of the um of the comedian or the performer Oh, the young man he's, It's hilarious, isn't it? It's so clever. So for the purple people who haven't seen it, it's um, a a man who basically is operating... In the stereotype that a lot of people hold of Oxford students, yeah, he's absolutely he's wonderful. Saying, I was so sympathetic really... to
0: him. I thought he was real for a moment. Okay. He's going, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm, well, I'm hoping for the Oxford one, you know, because that's that's the one, you know, how it is, isn't that?
1: Is that... My whole family, yes. My, my whole family's been. there. Like, he says, hi. Uh, what vaccine did you get? <sighs> oh, right. No, I had the Oxford one. Yes, yes. My whole family did it, so I thought, well, why not? And you know, I think it just gives a long-lasting immunity. <laughs> anyway, it's just very, very funny. It's, um, it's
0: delightful, but completely the Oxford, delightful. Yeah.
1: I wouldn't care which one I get. To be I wouldn't honest. either.
0: I should be very, very grateful to get whatever I'm given. But going back to the Americans, Congress.
1: Yes. Senate,
0: you gave us Senex, the older people, and of course, the new president being the oldest president in the history of the presidency. I'm looking forward yeah. to him having two terms and being a president knocking 90. Be fantastic. That would be amazing. Uh, Congress, that goes to the other mm. end, of course, because Congress is what you do at the beginning of the journey through life. To achieve people, you need Congress.
1: Well, that's true in the sexual congress sense, yeah. absolutely, because it's all to do with the, a meeting, either a meeting of bodies or a ah. meeting of minds or a meeting of delegates, especially those from a political party, which is how it came to mean the kind of national legislative body. It was founded in 1787, the US Congress. So, yes, it's all about coming together and meeting. I think con is with and the grass goes back to a Latin verb meaning to walk. So it's people who you walk with in life. Lovely.
0: So, Hmm. exactly, making Congress. I want to get back to protest, but while we're with the Americans, the Democrats and the Republicans, well, we know the history of the parties, Hmm. the Democrats have the colour blue Hmm. and the Republicans have the colour red, which is, as it were, the other way around to left-right in Britain, where the left has the red, as in the red flag that they used to be in old communist days, and the right seems to have blue as the colour.
1: It's a link with the Soviet Union, isn't it? The idea that... Yes, if you're left-leaning. I don't know where
0: the blue originates, but in America, the Democrats are donkeys and the Republicans are elephants.
1: Yes, and it's strange. As you say, it's a kind of flip. The blue and red is a flip of what we have in both the UK and other nations. So just to start with the colours, apparently they had nothing to do with either party originally. But in the 70s, the TV station or channel NBC had its first colour. Electoral map on air and bulbs would turn red for Jimmy Carter or Jimmy Carter won Democrat states and blue for Gerald Ford won Republican states. And by the 1980 elections, other TV networks somehow kind of followed suit, but it was a bit confusing for a while. So it was only very recently because of TV representation that actually the colours settled on blue for Democrats and Red for Republicans. As for the animals i think it's thought that republican elephant was first used during abraham lincoln's election campaign so that was in the 19th century no one quite knows why maybe it was a symbol of strength you know of kind of magnitude but certainly it was made popular as words so often are in a cartoon in a magazine after a man called thomas nast who was a republican drew it So that was that. And the Democratic donkey was first used earlier when I think it was the 1820s when the candidate Andrew Jackson used it. Now, he apparently had been called a donkey as a nickname, but he quite liked it, (laughs) which is a bit strange. And again, the same cartoonist later used it to represent the Democrats. And so I think it was thanks to this cartoonist, Thomas Nast, that actually both these emblems settled on their individual parties, which is amazing.
0: Very good. Well, people like to be associated with donkeys. I do remember the last time Donkey came up on our podcast a year or more ago, I talked about the book that my friend Derek Nimmo, the actor, wrote about animals. And um, there was a donkey featured on the cover. And it wasn't until the cover had actually been printed that one noticed that the donkey, well, it wasn't just a well-hung donkey, but it was a well-hung donkey in a state of high excitement at meeting Derek Nimmo. And this appeared on the cover. And I think Thank at you. the time you said, I don't believe this, but happily people tweeted and Instagrammed photos. <laughs> (laughs) photographs of this cover with this exuberant donkey. And this may explain why the politician was happy to be likened to a donkey.
1: Maybe, but you wouldn't think it would kind of help as necessarily his presidential credentials.
0: (laughs) But you never know. They get down to
1: extraordinary
0: things in the White House.
1: Well, you would know also uh, in political circles. I tell you, I I would know know.
0: some of these things because I was a friend of, and I know you like a bit of name dropping, so I'll throw this one in. I am a friend of a man called Walter Cronkite. Does that name mean anything to you? Yes,
1: yes. Now, was he not a newscaster? He
0: was the great newscaster. He was the man at C He'd been a wartime correspondent based in Europe, but he then became, as it were, the most trusted man in America. And I got to know him quite well. And he was a a lovely guy. And he'd met literally every American president in his lifetime from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right the way through to Clinton and Obama. And he said that in his experience, undoubtedly, The man, in theory, best equipped to be president, the most intellectually adept of all the presidents that he'd encountered, was undoubtedly Jimmy Carter. He said he was extraordinary, a man of great integrity and high intelligence. But, he said, he only succeeded in serving one term because he wasn't a politician. He didn't know how to make it all work on Capitol Hill. He didn't know how to manage the Senate and the Congress, and that's why he fell by the wayside.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. When I lived in America on the East Coast for a while, I think my anchor of choice was always Dan Rather, Dan oh, Rather yeah. Dan, who Dan was Rather. absolutely brilliant. And I follow him on Twitter now and he's quite, quite something.
0: I used to work for CBS News and occasionally was allowed to meet Dan Rather when I went over to New uh, York. And it was like yeah. getting an audience with the Queen, except the Queen is much more natural and informal than Dan Rather, because uh, he, it was like meeting a demigod. It was like going to Oz to meet the wizard. I mean, it was extraordinary. Mm. There was an invisible moat around him at all time. His suit was impeccable. His hair was absolutely in position. You may speak to Mr. Rather now. You may only have eight seconds. Mr. Rather, may I present uh, this guy, Giles from England. Yeah, eight seconds, eight Mm. seconds. Uh, It was extraordinary.
1: I hope this wasn't uh, his instigation because he comes across as being actually quite humble. He
0: he, he does. And of course he is now a much older person. They treated Mm. him like a god. And he was a god. They really, their news, and of course there, it's a country where the older the newscaster, somehow the more respect they are held in. And Mr. Cronkite, for 30 years after his retirement, he still had an office in CBS Towers called Mr. Cronkite's Office. This huge suite of rooms where people answered letters for him quite extraordinary the
1: only time i ever feel like a u.s president is when i'm filming you you will have had this as well and the wonderful wonderful team the runners for example will on their little headsets will say susie's coming down now she's on her way to the people on the floor you know in the studio and that's the only time that i feel like i'm almost i've almost got a bodyguard although most of the time it's just me
0: well i'm glad you don't need Uh, a bodyguard Um, Because it must be be a nightmare to be someone who has constantly got a bodyguard near you to live normally.
1: I remember Jerry Springer coming on Countdown and he had two bodyguards with him. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely not something I want. Should we we take a break?
0: Let's take a quick break. During that break, if you want, you can try and go on to Twitter or Instagram and find... Josh Berry. I think that's the guy you were talking about, Susie, uh, the, ah, the he's young amazing. comedian. He's, he's hilarious, and he's an impressionist as well. Very, very amusing. Look him up, but don't go very far, because we shall be back in a moment. We're still protesting. I want to know about manning the barricades and bringing down the guillotine. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah
1: Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. <laughs>
0: This is Something Rhymes With Purple, and today we're talking about the language of protest. And I want to know about manning the barricades. I'm thinking now of probably the most famous revolution still in the story of the world and its revolutions, the French Revolution at the Mm. end of the 18th century. Manning the barricades, that was the era Mm. of that. What are barricades?
1: Well, actually, do you know what? goes back to a protest a couple of centuries before the French Revolution, but it also did have applicational relevance during the French Revolution. But it's really interesting. So I have to say I'm not a historian, so I'm hoping I'm going to get this right. But you go back to the 36 years that were the kind of wars of religion, which really threatened the stability of France, really. So you had the Huguenots and you had the House of Guise. So both of them were basically protesting against the beliefs of each other. And in 1576, Henry III signed a peace treaty which accorded full religious liberty to the Huguenots and the Duke of Guise was absolutely not happy with this. He entered Paris, even though he'd been forbidden by the king, and was welcomed by the Parisians by all account and they erected barricades to prevent any the subjects who were loyal to the king from supporting their sovereign and Henry III fled, etc, etc. Mm. Anyway, barricade goes back to the French barrique, which means a barrel. That in turn comes from the Spanish. And these were physical casks that were weighted with earth and stones. They were erected to block the streets and isolate the king mm. and that event was referred to as la journée des barricades and that is how we have got barricade as a sort of physical barrier in English and actually Barica, barica in Spanish, a cask, is related to our barrel, but it's also related to so many other words in English. You've got a barrier, you've got the bar, as in the physical bar in a court of law, and you've got embarrassed because embarrassed has got that barra in it, and it means to be impeded as well as disconcerted. So something is kind of stopping you from, I guess, feeling at your best, or you know, you might be in an embarrassing situation in a way that it prevents you from moving forward. So it's got so many siblings in English, but that is where barricade in the physical sense arose. And then I think I'm right in saying that they also were used during the French Revolution.
0: Just give us that. I'm sure we've discussed this before, but it's one of my favourites. Monsieur... Was it Madame Guillotine? They called it Madame Guillotine, the way they executed people during the French Revolution. But there was somebody called Guillotine, wasn't there, who either designed it or used it. What is this origin of
1: that? Well, it was really odd because when Anne Boleyn was beheaded in the 1500s with a stroke of the sword, she apparently remarked really gratefully that her neck was small because she knew that death by the sword was rarely quick. But weirdly, that was the death that was accorded to the nobility because for the common people, the ultimate punishment was the gallows. But then if you fast forward 250 years, there was a doctor and he was called Joseph Ignace, Ignace, I guess, Guillotin. And he decided to change that. And actually, he had a really, I suppose, benevolent in some ways purpose in mind because he was really troubled by the inequality and he was troubled by the suffering endured by any victim of execution. So he proposed to a government assembly that no matter where you came from, what your social class was, the punishment should be the same. And that punishment should be carried out by a simple, incredibly efficient machine. And he knew about prototype machines that were being used in Scotland. He turned to a surgeon for help and they created something that was, I think it was called the Louisette. I think the doctor was called Louis, Dr Louis. And it was originally called the Louisette, but then it was later given the eponym Guillotin. But he created it in order to make, you know, if somebody had to be executed, he wanted it to be done as humanely as possible, which is strange. And then, of course, it was propelled into our language during the reign of terror in France when it was put to use for... Yeah, you know, thousands. Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, etc.
0: Revolutionaries are so called because they are revolting. Dissidents yeah. are so called because they are. What are they doing?
1: Dissidents. So dissident. Again, it actually strangely it sounds like it might be related to sedition, but it's not. It's all about sitting. And the Latin sedere to sit just comes up in so many different words in English from kind of sedan to sedentary and things that you might guess at. But dissident originally just meant sitting apart. So it was somebody who you didn't want to sit next to because they were rebelling against you or your authority, et cetera. So it's sitting apart, that's a dissident.
0: Well, look, we had some dissidents writing to us this week and perhaps we should turn to our correspondence now because we <laughs> talked about crosswords the other day and oh, yeah. there were some people on Twitter saying that some of the clues that we were saying were clues really were just sort of simple riddles and we hadn't really
1: got oh, yes we got
0: we, we, yes. we got a bit of flack and that's
1: fair hands enough hands up for that um, yeah
0: we, we don't know everything about everything well Susie knows most things I me.
1: absolutely don't yeah
0: but you do you do anyway we had lots of brilliant cryptic clues sent in uh, obviously as well some we could mm. solve some we're still working on anyway thanks to everybody a couple that tickled me Stuart Norman Wrote, Hello to you both. I've thoroughly enjoyed all the podcasts. Most recent episode about crosswords made me send in my favorite clue. And I'm not sure whether this would meet the criteria of the proper crossword aficionados. Anyway, two people are working together on a crossword, and one says to the other, Empty postman sack. The second says, How many letters? The first replies, None. It's empty. Very good. Quite clever. Anyway, well done, Captain Stuart Norman. (laughs) And um, have you got the one from David Cahill?
1: I don't. Read it out to me. Oh, fine.
0: David Cull, I think it's how you pronounce it, C-A-H-I-L-L, who lives in Santander. How extraordinary to live in a bank. Oh, no, it's a place in north of Spain. He took the (laughs) opportunity to appeal to our vanity. Here are three simple crossword clues for you. Are these Susie and Giles' coloured followers? Are these Susie and Giles' coloured followers? Oh, mm. I think I've got them. I've got that one. You got that one?
1: Uh, purple people. Purple
0: people. It's not very cryptic, but it's quite no. fun.
1: See dust
0: yes. in unusual podcaster. See dust in unusual podcaster. And that's five and four. See dust. Well, I mm. think I know what the answer is. Oh yes, I do see it. See dust in is an anagram of oh, Susie me. Dent.
1: I'm so used to E.T.'s undies, I never see any anagrams of my name. Oh,
0: is that an anagram? E.T.'s undies? Yes, E.T.'s undies. When we were talking about uh, presidents, uh, I remember meeting Vice President Sparrow Agnew, who was, mm. was he Gerald Ford's vice president. Anyway, he was a vice president and, and, I, and I met him. And unfortunately, when I met him, I'd just done an anagram of his name, which was Grow a Penis. And I could not, as I shook hands with him, I wanted to share with him, did he know that his name was... I didn't. I want you to know. I, I
1: didn't. Maybe not on the first meeting. Not
0: in the first meeting. <laughs> and there wasn't a second meeting because I think by then he'd been arrested and imprisoned. He was one of those American vice presidents that sort of fell from grace. And there's the third one. There's something in a biology lesson that is wonderfully eloquent. Something in a biology okay. lesson... So there's
1: got to be. A biology
0: lesson. Oh. Oh, it's you. It's Giles, G-Y-L-E-S in the middle. You see, biology lesson. So that's very clever. Thank you, David. He says thank you to us for entertaining and enlightening him. But in fact, we have to thank him for his contribution.
1: I have an email here from Andrew Harvey, who's also wanting to comment on our Crosswords episode, because we had mentioned Inspector Morse and his enjoyment of Crosswords. And he says the theme tune for Morse was written by... Australian composer Barrington Philong. and I lo- absolutely love that tune it takes me right back to the beautiful red car I read in Colin Dexter's books and then watching the programs it's just the most beautiful theme tune apparently Philong loved cryptic crosswords and into the theme tune he wove an audible pulse which can be heard throughout the piece and the pulse I never knew this spells out the word morse in morse code
0: It's so evocative, isn't it? I must say, I've been re-watching some of the old episodes and they certainly stand the test of time. They're brilliant.
1: And they've obviously reached New Zealand as well because Andrew is in Auckland. Oh, it's global. Um,
0: it's, it's, yeah. It's global. Um, and I have to say, I'm a friend of um, Sheila Hancock, as Sheila, you know, who's yeah. the uh, widow of John Thor. And uh, yeah. uh, his estate still gets a little bit of income uh, from the Morse programmes being shown all over the world and she runs a, a charity and um, supports young people in the arts through through oh. money that she raises from the old Morse episodes. Oh, amazing. Isn't that marvelous now? Yeah,
1: oh, yeah, that's brilliant.
0: So it's, it's fantastic. That's brilliant. I just love, I love, and I love the spin-offs. I love the one, you know, where they had the sidekick having his own series, uh, Kevin Wakeley, mm-hmm. and then there was a sort of junior, mini Morse, a kind of young Morse called Endeavour. I love that series too. I'm just hooked, yeah. hooked on Morse.
1: Anyway. No, brilliant.
0: Fanny Cook has been in touch. What a glorious name, Fanny Cook. That's fantastic. Dear Giles and Susie, my absolute favourite crossword clue was in The Times a couple of years ago. Cat and dog or cat and dog? Seven letters. That's the clue. Cat and dog or cat and dog? Seven letters. The answer, whip it. A cat, of course, is a cat and nine tails, which is a kind of whip. A dog or a cat is a pet. Whip and pet, put them together. You oh, get whippet, amazing. which is a dog. A cat and dog. Gosh,
1: that's fiendish. Or cat fiendish. and
0: dog. It's brilliant. That
1: is a fiendish. Fanny also has a question, doesn't yeah, she? Yes, she does,
0: because she is a cook. And this is her question. Go for it.
1: Well, she wants to know if there's any connection between syllabus, syllable... And a syllabub. Gosh, I haven't heard the word syllabub for ages. It's the sort of pudding
0: um, that Fanny Craddock would have created. Syllabus, syllable, syllabub. What is the connection?
1: Yes. Okay. there isn't one, I'm afraid to tell you. Uh, So, syllabus first appeared from Latin to mean a table of contents of a series of lectures, but apparently... It began as a mistake because it was a misreading of a Greek word sytibos, meaning a parchment label or a table of contents. So they kind of transposed some of the letters and the misprint appeared in the 15th century and just then has stayed with us ever since. So that syllabus, syllabub, we don't know where that comes from. Syllabub is kind of milk and wine, isn't it? It's very sweet, but it can also mean really florid prose too oh. but we don't know where that comes from but we're pretty sure it's not linked to syllabus and a syllable goes back to the greek meaning that which is held together because a syllable is several sounds or letters taken together so they are all etymologically distinct even though they sound so similar
0: and if you can tell us the exact origin of syllabub please get in touch it's purple at somethingelse.com something spelt without a g just to be a little bit difficult. Purple at else.com. One more quick letter from somebody whose name sounds as if it could be a crossword puzzle clue. Edward H. Kafka Gelbrecht. He gives his address as soon to be clear of West Virginia. It's wonderful we have this global audience. Thank you for being there. He's asking about carrots with an O and carrots with an A. Dear Susie and Giles, serendipity, I just finished listening to your delightful talk from episode and I happen to be munching on a late night carrot. Well done, him. While well, Susie gave her trio, which included nyctalopia, N-Y-C-T-A-L-O-P-I-A, the condition of poor vision in low light. Not if I could help mm. it. And that got me wondering, can Susie shed any light on the shared or divergent histories and meanings of carrot, C-A-R-R-O-T, that says in the vegetable, carrot, C-A-R-E-T, you'll have to remind me what that is, and carrot, C-A-R-A-T, stroke carrot, K-A-R-A-T. Many thanks. Okay,
1: whirlwind tool. I will start with the carrot, as in carrot of gold or diamond etc so it's a unit of weight used to measure the size of a gemstone or to weigh gold etc so hundreds of years ago when people needed a standard weight for weighing their gems they turned to the carob tree and the seed of the carob tree apparently weighed in their view approximately the same as the smallest gemstone and so that was decided as the base unit for weight and the seed was called a carrot and so that was given to the measurement. So any stone that was about the weight of one seed was thought to weigh one carat. So that goes back to the tree. Carrot with an E, C-A-R-E-T, is a kind of a mark made on a written document to indicate the place where something's to be inserted. So it's the kind of the upside down U, except it's very pointed. I think that's the carrot, And that goes back to the Latin meaning to be without, there is lacking. In other words, you need to insert something here. And the carrot, I also love them. This has been around for centuries. It was a medicinal plant to the ancients. It was used as an aphrodisiac. It was used as a cure against poison. We had purple-rooted carrots going back as early as the 7th century, etc. And that simply goes back to a Greek word, caroton, meaning a carrot. So not particularly interesting, except the theory that carrots are good for the eyesight apparently began in ancient times, but it was really hyped up in the Second World War because apparently the government really wanted people to eat more carrots, which was one of the few foods that you could get quite easily. It wasn't rationed. And so they put it about that pilots of night fighter jets consumed vast quantities of carrots to help them see in the dark. So I'm not entirely sure that carrots... I mean, I'm sure there are compounds in them that do help you see in the dark, vitamin A, etc. But they're certainly not the only ones.
0: Well, we're back where we started, because I began by talking about conspiracy theories, and that seems to be an official conspiracy theory during the Second World War, spread out there, eat carrots, see in the dark. How intriguing.
1: There's apparently another one to do with spinach, and I remember the scientist Adam Hart-Davis telling me that the whole idea about spinach and strength and iron was down to the misplacing of a decimal point. In some scientific paper on how much iron spinach contains. So, yes, it's leafy and it contains iron, but just as much as any other green vegetable. And Popeye the Sailor so, Man. Popeye. And
0: Popeye the Sailor Man. <laughs> oh, I loved Popeye. I was always fascinated with Popeye's relationship with olive oil. Oh, because yes, olive. She was, they appeared yes. to live together, but they weren't married um, it was very shocking in the 1950s when I was watching yeah oh yeah, yeah oh yeah and they had a child they had um, a love child didn't they called Tweety Pie or something <laughs> I'm getting confused now oh, I
1: don't now I remember Wimpy the one who just sat down and ate loads and loads of hamburgers do you remember him he was Popeye's friend I do remember Wimpy okay yes we of have this, Wimpy not, bars okay uh,
0: now, oh is it like Wimpy bars Wimpy I, think and-
1: that's, I think Wimpy was probably named after Popeye. I don't know. I have no, really no idea. But there's
0: no connection between the Wimpy. Wimpy bar and Popeye. You can't just throw something in a program well, about Why not? Words because of-
1: Wimpy, the character, sat and ate stacks of hamburgers.
0: Oh, oh I don't yeah. know
1: which came first. I'm
0: sure Popeye came much before. I think Popeye was invented in the 1920s or 1930s.
1: Well, there uh, you go. That's probably why the Wimpy Bar was so named. There
0: can be no connection between Wimpy, <laughs> as the cartoon character in the Popeye series, who I think anyway may have been spelt with an E W I M P E Y. No, no, don't think so. No, okay. oh, I, well, oh, I'm not maybe. sure, and the Wim- we'll have to get to grips with that between now and next week. Let's. Okay. That's your homework. Okay.
1: Okay. For those who have no clue what we're talking about, Wimpy Bars used to be a really popular hamburger chain, and you would pop down the Wimpy for a cheap hamburger and chips. Oh, and they were um,
0: superb. And they had these enormous tomatoes made out of plastic, and yes, ketchup, ketchup bottles. bottles. Oh, I loved them. They were great. Oh, they were. They were those. Great. Those, oh, those I were could the days. Even oh.
1: them vegetarian. Do you want my trio? I want
0: your trio. Yes, because we're running out of time. My goodness, we've babbled okay.
1: on. So the first one is jawbation, which is a long and tedious harangue. So it's a lecture that someone delivers to you. It might link into your conspiracy theorists who like to deliver a few jawbations or indeed anybody. But I quite like the sound of that one. The next one is something I do all the time because no matter how small my bag or rucksack is, I can never find anything in it. And to fossick is to rootle around for something. So if you're fossicking, you're just kind of grubbling around in your bag trying to find the thing that you need. And finally, I mentioned that I was just feeling a little bit apathetic at the start of January, the start of the year. To be twicked is a term from the Isle of Wight for being tired and exhausted and just a little bit limp. Twickered. Oh,
0: well, but you're no longer twickered now after we've had our time together.
1: No, I really enjoyed that.
0: And I enjoyed today because my day began by seeing a rainbow. I looked out Ah. of the window and there was a rainbow. My part of London, we had a rainbow today. And it took me to the poem I'm going to share with you by William Wordsworth. And I think this is the poem that introduces to our language a phrase that has been used, well, universally ever since. The poem is called My Heart Leaps Up. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety.
1: Isn't that beautiful?
0: William Wordsworth, who I think coined the phrase the child is father of the man and this may be the poem that he coined it for.
1: Lovely. Lovely. That's very, very beautiful. I love rainbows. There's something so special about those. That's our lot. That is our lot. So, just thosking around for our credits. Um, thank you so much for listening. And do please get in touch. We have had so many brilliant letters, particularly during lockdown, which really cheered us up. The email is purple at somethingelse.com. Something Right with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella MacLeod, Jay Beale, and... Ah, well, don't know where he is. No, he's permanently twicked. It's Gully.